0: And would you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to be uh, concentrating on the second half of verse 5 and verse 6, but we're going to go back and read verses 4 through 7 together. But 1 Corinthians 13, we've been working through the Apostle Paul's assertion that spiritual gifts are a most excellent way. They're wonderful. When we exercise our spiritual gifts biblically, some amazing things happen. First and foremost, God is glorified, the church is edified, good triumphs over evil, and believers live full or abundant lives. And so for that reason, no wonder Paul gives so much attention to spiritual gifts. The Bible has much to say to us about the exercise of spiritual gifts, and it's really, really important for us not only to understand spiritual gifts, but to learn and to implement them. However, While spiritual gifts are a most excellent way, spiritual gifts are not the most excellent way. Uh, This came to light when Paul gave us a mathematical formula a couple weeks ago, and the the formula was this, that spiritual gifts plus lovelessness equals zero. You can learn about spiritual gifts, you can even um, understand your own spiritual gifts and exercise them, but if you do it without love, you're missing the point altogether, Because the point of spiritual gifts is to make God known, and God is love. You can't make God known without love, no matter how much you exercise spiritual gifts. And so that's why Paul said in the second half of 1 Corinthians 12, 31, he says, Now, after all this discussion on spiritual gifts, now I will show you a still more excellent way. Remember, spiritual gifts are a most excellent way. And we need to exercise them, but there's a still more excellent way, and that way is love. Agape love, which is defined as the steady intention of the will to another's highest good. The steady intention of the will to another's highest good. It's not self-centered, it is others-centered. And this kind of love has five aspects to it. It's volitional, meaning that it isn't dependent on how we feel. It's not something we fall into. It's something we choose. It by our will. It is unconditional. It's not dependent on whether we view someone else to be worthy of our love. We love unconditionally the way that God loves unconditionally. It is sacrificial. It is sacrificial, meaning that love costs. If it is truly love in action, it's not going to come cheaply. It's us making sacrifice on behalf of someone else. And it is practical. It is not just something we say. It's easy to say, I love you. It's a whole other thing to actually act upon it and to do sacrificial deeds of love. And lastly, it's evidential. It's the primary means of which we give evidence that we belong to God, to Jesus Christ, who is love. And so it's volitional, unconditional, sacrificial, practical, evidential. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7... What's happening here in this passage is Paul takes agape love and he places it through a prism, that wonderful shape by which when light goes through it, a rainbow results. And in this particular case, as the beam of light goes into the prism, there are 15 different characteristics of agape love which come out, providing for us this wonderfully beautiful detailed picture of what love is like. So would you please stand with me as we read this familiar text again? 1 Corinthians 13 beginning with verse 4, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things and endures all things. Heavenly Father, would you please meet with us this morning? And would you please open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our wills to what you would teach us through this text today. We are weekly now in this section confronted with what true love looks like. And it is a very, very different picture than how the world would describe love. And I'm sure that each one of us to some degree have been shaped by the world's understanding and definition of love. And so where we are in error, would you please correct us this morning? Where we have been deficient, would you please, by the work of your Holy Spirit who fills us, who indwells us, would you make us strong and able to supernaturally love the way that only you can love? And So this is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So last week, as we initially took this beam of light, of agape love, and put it through the prism, we learned that... Love does not envy, love does not boast, love is not arrogant, and love is not rude. And so as we take a look at this text as a whole, all on one slide, um, you'll see that those traits of agape love that we covered last week are in green. Today we're going to cover the ones that are in blue. And then next week, we'll finish out this section with those that are in purple. And so let's focus today on those in blue. The first of which tells us that love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. That that word insist, it comes from the Greek zeteo, which literally means to seek, to ask, to search for or to strive, and it's interestingly the word that Jesus used in Matthew 6.33, we see something of the strength of this word when Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. So this word zeteo, to seek for, to search after, to strive for, here the object is to be God's kingdom, The problem is, left to ourselves, what do we tend to seek after? Our own kingdom, right? Those things that most benefit us. Our seeking tends to be about insisting on our own way instead of loving others. And so the loveless person seeks their own good, seeks their own personal advantage, and seeks their own benefit. It's very natural. That's kind of how we're, that's our default but simply stated, they are self-seeking, and the reality is captured. And I love this title—one of my favorite titles I've come across recently. an Author named David Zimmerman. Uh, he wrote a book called "Deliver Us from Meville." Isn't that good? You see the little sign, Meville, population one. And uh, on the back cover, the book reads, "Welcome to Meville, where you're surrounded by a culture that celebrates and elevates the individual." The you utopia, where your home, place of work, and even your place of worship is customized to your discerning tastes. A super exclusive club where self and pride party and sacrifice and humility can't get past the velvet ropes. A place where it's all about you. It's funny, but it's sad because we can relate. In contrast, however, agape love, that definition again, the steady intention of the will to another's highest good. It's not about us. It's about others. The seeking, the asking, the searching and striving, the zeteo is ultimately what is best for others. That's what we are to seek after and to strive for. Just as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.24, he says it bluntly. He says, Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Now, As we did last week, we'll do this a couple times today, let's look at the the context of our passage, understanding that the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church at Corinth. They had many problems. And so we might ask ourselves the question, in what sense did the Corinthians insist on their own way? And you all know the stories of the Corinthians enough to kind of come to your own conclusions, but number one, they were self-centered, insisting on their own way in their exercise of spiritual gifts. They weren't using them to build up the body and to bless others, but it was about them. It was about building themselves up. Next, they were self-centered and insisted on their own way when they went about the business of suing fellow believers they were suing fellow believers with the desire to get what they viewed was theirs. Again, that's not God's intent for His family. They were self-centered in how they went about the Lord's Supper, the time that it was supposed to be a love feast, and with special sharing and fellowship, um, certain people would show up and they would hoard the food for themselves, and they would not share with others. They were insisting on their own way. It was meville. In these ways, the Corinthians insisted on their own way. Well, this self-centeredness must not have been unique to Corinth because the Apostle Paul also addressed it with the church at Philippi. When he said in Philippians 2-3, he says to that church and to this church, he says, "...do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. you say, well, okay, what, what kind of mind did Jesus have that we are instructed to have? Well, it was the mind of a servant. It was the mind of a servant who did not insist on his own way, but was most interested, primarily interested in others. As it says in Matthew 20, 28... Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so true love, true agape love serves others. It does not insist on its own way. Not self-centered, but God and others-centered. Next, as the light of love passes through the prism, we find that the next trait in the blue box It is not irritable. Love is not irritable. And already I'm convicted. I can get more than a little irritable at times. That word irritable, another interesting Greek word, paroxuno, paroxuno, which literally means to make sharp or sharpen. Paroxuno, to make sharp or sharpen. What happens to you or what would happen to you if you got poked with a sharp stick? You'd react, wouldn't you? You'd get irritated. That's our natural reaction is to, to respond when poked and to get irritated and maybe even angry. It's natural. But it isn't love as defined in God's Word. Love is not irritable. It is not easily provoked or angered, even when poked with a really, really sharp stick. And here we find an interesting connection with the first point in our sermon. Remember, what was the first one, love does not seek its own? The truth of the matter is that those who most insist on their own way tend to be those who are most irritable. True? Those who most insist on their own way tend to be those who are most irritable. Why is that? Well, because when something or someone prevents them from getting their own way, they become very provoked and angry. People become an impediment to them getting what they want, and so they get irritated. And when situations don't go the way that they want them to go, they get irritated. On the other hand, here's here's something very freeing. When you give up self centered seeking, when you vacate Meville and the expectations that go along with it, you eliminate the frustration and are able to live in peace. You no longer expect everything to be about you. And if things don't go your way and you don't get what you expected, you get irritated. That's not the case anymore. You release those expectations, you release that sense of what you think are your rights. And all of a sudden, wow, life is peaceful. Accordingly, it takes a lot to irritate a person who is built on loving God and others. It takes a lot to irritate a person whose life is built on loving God and loving others. They have a very long fuse, just like Jesus. Do You ever think about how long Jesus' fuse was? Oh, my goodness, the times when he, they, they tried to trap him in his words or they tried to kill him. And then ultimately they did nail him to a cross. They abused him. And, but it is it says in 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called, church, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Talk about a long fuse. Talk about not being irritable when provoked. Therefore, we're commanded in Romans 12, bless those who persecute you, Bless and do not curse them. And then in verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Because you know, sometimes we can think, they can't get away with that. And if I don't do something about it, they will get away with it, right? Nobody's going to get away with anything on this earth, right? God is the judge. God will see that each person gets what is their due. You're going to get poked in this life. You're going to get provoked. There's a lot of sharp sticks and a lot of people eager to use them, especially if you're a follower of Jesus. But when you get poked, we are not to respond naturally with our irritation. Rather, we are to respond supernaturally by the power of the Holy Spirit within us with love, just as Jesus did. And let God take care of the rest. Let God be the judge. And so as we put the light of love through the prism... First of all, we saw the color of love does not insist on its own way, and now we see that love is not irritable. The next blue box, love is not resentful. Love is not resentful. Resentful comes from the Greek logizomai, and this is pretty fascinating to me. Where are my uh, accountant-type people, my tax people, my bookkeeping-type people? Raise your hand high. This word is for you, okay? Okay. Legizomai, it literally means to make a permanent entry, like in a ledger, like in a book, like when you're keeping track of finances or keeping score. In the context of our discussion of love, the idea of not being resentful, or this word, Legizomai, the idea is that of a person who is keeping a mental ledger of all the wrongs that have been committed against them, a naughty list. Right, Kind of like this guy, right? He's got a naughty list. Making it, checking it twice. Well, whether we want to admit it or not, probably most every single one of us have a naughty list, don't we? People who have wronged us, who have taken a sharp stick and provoked us. In that name, or those names, they get etched in the ledger of our brains, The problem is that on that ledger in our brains, it is recorded with poisoned ink, the poisoned ink of resentment, which, when that poisoned ink is left unchecked, it leads to the disease of unforgiveness and bitterness. And ultimately, it becomes a stronghold of Satan, which holds us in bondage. I've heard it said that bitterness and unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. doesn't work that way, does it? Who dies when you drink the poison? You do. And here's the point, especially as it relates to this series about the abundance or fullness of life. You will never experience the fullness of life that God intends for you as long as you are holding on to resentment. You will never experience the fullness of life that God intends for you as long as you are holding on to resentment because it is this poison within you that is making you sicker than you realize. The problem is that you think it's normal. You've done it for so long, you think that dysfunction and that disease, it is normal and it is not. That bondage is not normal. Which raises the question, well, then are we supposed to forgive and forget? Some of you would say, that's really naïve to think that we can forgive and forget. And I get it, because some of you have been hurt profoundly, deeply. Some of you have been through some horrific abuse. Some of you have not just been poked with a sharp stick. It has impaled you. It has gone through you, and you have the wounds of it to this very day. And so you're supposed to forget that? And I would say the answer is no. We will not be able to forget and to, uh, to assert that somehow you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, spiritually speaking, if you don't forget, I don't think that that's smart. I don't think it's wise. I don't think it's biblical. But here, by God's Spirit, by God's Spirit alone, we will be do- able to do something more powerful than to forgive and forget. You know what it is? We'll be able to remember and still forgive. To remember and still forgive. To not pretend or ignore that the wound never happened, that the abuse never happened. But to remember, and as we give it to Jesus, to receive the healing that only he can give and the power that only he can give us to truly be able to forgive so that we do not hold wrongs to another's account the way that God has done for us. Do you ever think about how God has forgiven us? And I love this use of legizomai in relation to God. Romans 4.8 says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Second Corinthians 5.19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Part of being entrusted with the message of reconciliation are to be people who walk in forgiveness and then therefore are able to proclaim God's forgiveness and His power to transform our hearts to the point that we can even forgive others. In contrast, a pastor told this story. One married man said to his friend, you know, every time my wife and I get into a conflict, she gets historical His friend said, historical? Don't you mean hysterical? No, I mean historical. She rehearses everything I've ever done in the whole history of our marriage. It's not love, right? Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love is not resentful. Love does not hold that against those who have offended us. But in contrast, Psalm 103, verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Reminding us that, that love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable, and love is not resentful. Next, the next blue box, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Wrongdoing comes from the Greek, I can't say this one very easily, adikia. There we go, adikia. It literally means unrighteousness, iniquity, wickedness, bad stuff. And it refers to the fact that selfless love does not take delight in that which is offensive to God. It does not rejoice when trouble or problems befall another, even when they are the result of the person's own foolishness or iniquity. Now again as we consider the context of 1 Corinthians, in what sense were the Corinthians rejoicing at wrongdoing? Really a grotesque example in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1 The Apostle Paul writes to them and says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. He goes on to say in verse 6, Your boasting is not good. He's saying, You Corinthians, stop rejoicing in wrongdoing. Stop rejoicing that this man is sleeping with his stepmother. That is not God's design. It is sin, and it is not loving to rejoice. In contrast, it says anything that is wrong in God's sight grieves a heart that is full of love. Not merely because the wrong hurts the one to whom it is done, but especially because God is displeased with the wrong and must punish the wrongdoer. Instead of rejoicing over the wrong, negative, love grieves over the wrong, positive. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It does not take delight in sin, nor does it take delight in the demise of others. So, you ready to put this to the test? I've got a couple tests for you this morning. Okay, here's the first. How do you respond to this? Yeah, you're gloating, aren't you? You failed already. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with those who It mourns with those who mourn. So clearly you have a lot of work to do in this particular area. All right, how about this one? Big story in the news this week, right? Leah Thomas, formerly Will Thomas, becomes the NCAA's first transgender D1 champion in any sport, dominating a field of women in swimming. What is your response to this? Now, one response could be, and I imagine that there are congregations this morning who would say, good for her. If Leah identifies as a woman, she should be able to live and compete however she wants. And more and more, of course, this is the response of our culture. The resp- this would be labeled as the loving response, would it not? And anyone who would not give Leah affirmation in doing this would be considered to be bigoted and narrow and hateful. This is not the loving response, according to 1 Corinthians 13.6. Why? Because to affirm, to celebrate, to rejoice in this wrongdoing is contrary to the word of God. Genesis one twenty seven reads, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are not to put ourselves in the place of God And to change, to rearrange what he has ordained, no matter how popular that ideology becomes. And the prophet Isaiah said, "'Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter.'" And more and more in our world, this is happening with greater degree each and every passing day. Evil is being called good. Good is being called evil. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Now, let me take just a moment and address those who are here this morning who may be struggling with issues of gender identification. Know that you are loved by this church family those who hold to biblical truth and want absolutely what is God's best for you. The teenage years are especially a season of confusion, even in the best of circumstances. Everyone goes through them. You will undoubtedly go through seasons. Every teenager will of certain kinds of questioning, of doubting. But at the end of the day, make no mistake, God has made you beautiful just as he created you. And he has a purpose and he has a plan for you just as he created you. And your worth does not come from anything else than the fact that God created you, loves you, has a plan for your life, and Jesus died for you. And you are loved by this church. And you are surrounded by a church family and by spiritual leaders, who very much want to walk alongside with you through those seasons of confusion, through those seasons of doubts. They are available, they're willing, and they love you. So, true love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Let's look at another possible response to this situation. Especially in light of the fact that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It might be our response to become irritated to become provoked, and to hope for the demise of this individual. And friends, that isn't loving either. If you are more irritated by this person in this situation than you are concerned for this person, it is an indication that there is a need for growth and love in your life. This is a person who's confused and struggling, wounded, and in pain. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 4 through 5. Love does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable, it is not resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. And finally, for today, the last blue box related to the one before, it rejoices with the truth. It rejoices with the truth. The flip side of the fact that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Where love is truly present, truth. Is truly present. Where love is truly present, truth is truly present, which is why Paul said in Ephesians 4.15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And what is truth? That was Pilate's question, right? What is truth? Is it whatever we want it to be? Is it whatever culture tells us it to be? Is it whatever feels right? No. Jesus said in John 17:17 17, 17, he said sanctify them in the truth what is truth your word is truth your word is truth and so any time that we go against the truth of God's word we are not being loving we're actually being the opposite of loving Pastor Stephen Cole said it this way. So there's a fine balance to love. Although love is kind and overlooks the faults of others, it does not compromise the truth or take a soft view of sin. To allow another person to go on in sin, whether it is known sin or a blind spot, is not to seek his best. It is not love. Love will sensitively confront and correct precisely because it cares deeply and knows that sin destroys. Love rejoices with the truth. That's one of the things I appreciate about this congregation, this church family, is that you are a congregation committed to truth. I think the next step for us in being a congregation committed to truth is being those who take that step of faith, obedience, and risk, and speaking the truth in love. In love desiring what is best for that other person. Not trying to win a fight. Not trying to be proven right. I think that's where it breaks down for us so often is we, we want to be viewed as right and being on the right side of history and being right scripturally. And that's, it's important that we're right. But it's even more important that we are loving. The two go together. It's another one of those both and kind of scenarios I keep bringing up for you. It's both and. So, as we look at the text as a whole, love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. does not rejoice at wrongdoing. And it rejoices with the truth. So, let's talk about application. How should we then live? Here are some very practical things for you to take home today. Number one, move out of Meville. Move out of me Ask the Holy Spirit, God, in what ways am I more about seeking my kingdom than your kingdom? In what ways have I made it all about me and my wishes, wants, and desires, and comforts? And where do I need to repent in that regard? And so would you pack up? Move out of Meville and move into the territory that God has for you in love and service to others instead of being self-centered and self-focused. Number two, intentionally seek out irritating people to love. I know it sounds funny at first. Intentionally seek out irritating people to love. People, um, go find some people who think differently than you who live differently than you and make friends and serve them and love them. And I think you'll be amazed when you do that at the work that Jesus does in your heart in giving you love for them. When we all just kind of clump together and stay in our silos and only relate to people who think like we do, who talk like we do, um, it's easy for us to get that self-righteous attitude toward others because we don't know them. And so we don't have a heart for them. We don't love them. And we fall into that trap of being on, we're right and they're wrong. And that may be true, but again, that's not what's most important to God. What's most important to God is that we manifest his presence, that we manifest his love, and that through that love, as we speak the truth in love, that we give them the opportunity to respond to the message of the gospel. That'll never happen without relationship. And so seek out irritating people to love, people who might provoke you, people who are different from you. That's what Jesus did, isn't it? He got accused of being known as one who ate with. T- Next, destroy your list. Destroy your list. What list is that? The list that, if you're honest, you've been keeping in your mind of all the people who have hurt you over the years. Those conversations. That you have, those imaginary conversations that you would have, and you rehearse it and repeat it and ruminate on it over and over and over. Well, I would say this, and I, that poison that you've been drinking while expecting them to die. I might even expect or suggest that you do a brain dump, that you take a piece of paper and that list that really does exist in your brain, that you put it physically on a piece of paper and then literally destroy it. Set it on fire, tear it up. Whatever you have to do as a symbol of the fact that you are taking this step of obedience and faith and giving it to the Lord. Whatever it takes, destroy your list, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, be set free from unforgiveness and bitterness, that the Holy Spirit would give you the ability to, yes, remember that wounds have taken place, But to forgive, to let loose. Next, pray for Leah Thomas. Have you prayed for that individual since you were provoked and irritated by it, her, by the situation and by her? Pray for Leah Thomas. Pray for our our world. Pray for the confusion. Pray for the lies of Satan that are shaping and molding who we are as a people. But pray for the individual, that this person who's created in God's image and for whom God sent his son to die, that Leah Thomas would find Jesus and find healing and transformation. Lastly, speak the truth in love to someone this week. Speak the truth in love to someone this week. Go beyond weather and politics and sports and March Madness, although I get it. Get down into the nitty gritty of life and the things that matter in the scope of eternity. Take a risk in stepping out and talking about things that just might be provocative and just might be risky, but as led by the Holy Spirit, speak whatever He lays on your heart, regardless of the anticipated outcome. Life is too short, is it not? Life is too short. We are not guaranteed the next breath, let alone guaranteed tomorrow or the next week. There are conversations that you have been putting off for weeks and months, if not years, that need to happen today. So, move out of Meville, seek out irritating people to love, destroy your list, pray for Leah Thomas and speak the truth and love to someone this week. That's enough to keep you busy, right? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is not easy. This is hard. It's not natural. It's supernatural. And for that, we cry out to you for your Holy Spirit to do in us and through us what we cannot do ourselves. God, our world needs the love of Jesus, but not some kind of squishy, fuzzy, sentimental kind of love. It needs Jesus' love that is based on truth. Help us to be Jesus, truth-loving people who live sacrificially, who live for others instead of ourselves, who do not hold on to resentments, but reflect the very grace that we have received. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.